This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Jody Eichler-Levine, who teaches at Lehigh University, here to talk about her new book, Suffer the Little Children, Uses of the Past in Jewish and African-American Children's Literature, published in 2013 by the New York University Press. Jody, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you. So maybe let's start, um, as the book does, with the idea of chosenness. What does what does chosenness mean, and why are narratives of chosenness uh, regularly told in children's tales? I think that's a great place to start. I think chosenness, as I say, is a bit of a moving target. Once you think you've got it, uh, what means what means what it means to be chosen changes again. Um, in America, where we see so many narratives of distinctiveness of American exceptionalism and so much. Uh, so many afterlives of the Hebrew Bible shooting through American identity, the idea of chosenness tends to be deeply, deeply connected with citizenship. So one can be chosen to be the greatest democracy ever, some would say. Um, You can be chosen to be particularly good at democracy or to be favored by God. There's a lot of different versions of what it means to be chosen. And as I write for Maurice Sendak, uh, chosenness is not necessarily a good thing. Um, being a chosen people also also comes with tremendous burdens and problems. So I think that chosenness is big in children's literature, in part because children's literature is at its core about identity. You could say that about all literature, of course. All literature is about identity. But um, when people are writing for children, they're often trying to inculcate a sense of identity, and that's where chosenness comes in, and it's a very slippery little widget. Yeah, you say juvenile literature is a site at and through which we perform core cultural ideas. What do you mean by that? I mean that um, it's a distillation point. It's a process, um, um, a representation site where communities, um, in the case of my book, Jews and African-American communities, but this really goes for anyone, are trying so hard to figure out what's most important. What are we going to portray when we have maybe, say, 10 pages, 15 pages, 20 pages, that your relief lines, whether it's of what's most important to religious identity, come through. So take Hanukkah, right? It's, it's Hanukkah right now in the States. Um, it's uh, a very, very, very popular topic for Jewish children's books. When you look at Jewish children's books about Hanukkah, um, a few key themes emerge. You see, hey, look, heroism. We've got to get the heroism across. 
And you see um, tension between the idea of assimilating or not assimilating. Academics think about those in very complicated ways, and so do children's book authors. But um, those little uh, books, which are not at all uh, small in stature, end up being a place where um, where communities try to, to pull out those most key points. And that's why they're also a fractious site, too. Right. So it seems like, um, you know, children's literature, you have to get your message across, you know, quickly. Children have short attention spans. It seems like a great uh, source for historians, literary scholars. But my sense is that children's literature hasn't really received the attention it deserves. Do you do you agree? And if so, why not? Yeah. Um, no, I absolutely would agree with that. I think um, I think in the field of English more generally, so not speaking necessarily about religion studies, in the field of English, children's literature has gotten more attention, but still not enough. Um, some of that is an old sort of highbrow, lowbrow debate, right? The idea that if it's written for children, it is juvenile or simple, um, when in fact it's quite hard to write for children. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. I think that um, childhood studies is getting really growing attention in the academy. The American Academy of Religion now has a great childhood studies and religion group. But I think that the field has gotten short shrift because juvenile is seen as a pejorative term. People use the term kitty lit, which I use all the time, um, but that suggests non-high literature. I think um, I think this is changing. Right. What have been the big shifts in children's literature more broadly? Before we get into um, the Jewish and African-American, um, you know, sort of subset that you look at, what have been the big shifts in terms of the types of literature that are produced for children, and what would have been the turning points? Absolutely. Um, that's a huge question. Um, if we're going to talk about children's literature, just I'll stick with the English language, and I'll focus on America and England. Um, you have, I would say, a few crucial shifts. The, the most crucial one is the late 19th and early 20th century. That's in part because late 19th century culture, Victorian culture, in part invents the very notion of the child, right? The idea of children as somehow innocent, as needing their own particular um, genre of literature. That's a very, very recent one. Um, so in some ways, even though what we call children's literature precedes that period, um, the time period of um, first uh, of Lewis Carroll, of then... Um, Barry, I'm naming all British people, of course, right now, um, is an important opening point for children's literature. And the early 20th century becomes a time when women actually um, get to be real shapers of children's literature, not as authors, but as editors, because it's seen as demeaning, it's seen as juvenile. Um, and so women are seen as naturally allied with children um, and become the early editors and um, librarians um, working on children's literature in the United States. So that's a crucial first point. Um, the next big turn comes um, after World War II because you have the baby boomers. So when you have baby boomers, you have a large population of children um, looking to potentially consume literature, and you have a growing affluence in America. So that's the moment when children's literature grows and starts to get more respect, you might say, and then third, I would say um, really this last 20 to 30 year period um, has been fascinating and explosive for children's literature, in part the growth of what we call young adult literature as a distinct category um, has really blossomed and emerged. So you get 
um, Harry Potter, which sort of crosses the line between all of these age levels. You get John Green. Um, you get a lot of just huge blockbusters out of that field to the point where uh, children's literature book releases become an opening night extravaganza. And I think that's part of why it's come onto more scholars' radar more recently. Right. So your book looks at um, some classics from the post-World War II period, but really focuses in on, on that third period that you mentioned, the last three <laughs> decades. How did you select the books? It's a very good question. Um, there were far more books than I could have ever dealt with in one monograph. Partially, I selected books by their popularity. Um, so um, with the post-war classics, of course, as you mentioned, those sort of stood the test of time. Um, but also award-winning books tend to also sell well. So um, Virginia Hamilton, for example, uh, whose work I study in the final chapter um, uh, is on a lot of bestseller lists. Um, Julius Lester's work has won Newbery honors. So some of it was award determination. And some of it was essentially sort of online ethnography, right? So periodically checking um, Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble and sites that had um, gained in popularity when I started this research allowed me to see what was trending, essentially. I don't even know if we were using the term what was trending in the same way when I started this work, <laughs> but, um, but it was a way to keep an eye out and notice, for example, if there was a movie that came out, The Devil's Arithmetic, which I discussed in Chapter 4, um, and was a, an award-winning po popular book for a long time, but then when the film adaptation of it came out, um, it, it suddenly hit number one on Amazon, and I said, "Well, I better take a look at that." So that it was, it was not the most scientific method, perhaps, but that's my part of my point is that religious studies scholars sometimes overlook the most popular popular texts because we have a fixed canon. Right. So, so the book looks at um, Jewish and African-American children's literature, and you say Jews and African-Americans are natural conversation partners. What do you mean by that? Um, what I mean is that whether we like it or not, um, and there's much that I criticize too here, um, Jews and African-Americans have been paired in the American imaginary for uh, at least 100 years now. So they're not the same group, and they're not mutually exclusive. There are Jewish African-Americans. However, um, because of the ways that narratives of exodus are mobilized by both groups, because of points of both great co cooperation, like the civil rights movement, and points of great tension, like the 1991 Crown Heights riots, um, Jews and African Americans have often been paired up as, as if they were a natural conversation partner sometimes by Jews and African-Americans themselves. Um, so, for example, Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Luther King Jr. really were friends and um, intellectual activist comrades. So there is a sort of history here to already trace. But partially, um, Jews and African-Americans are two of what uh, R. Lawrence Moore calls uh, religious outsiders. In other words, Jews, Mormons, African-Americans, um, Native Americans, other groups that don't fit the sort of dominant white Protestant Christian narrative of American religious history, um, those groups often do have uh, sort of touch points, uh, moments where their narratives um, can reach out and be read together in very productive ways. Right. And you, you read uh, 
you know, you went, you go back and forth in your reading. Tell us what is multi-directional reading and how does one do this type of analysis? Multi-directional reading is a term I take from uh, literary scholar Michael Rothberg at the University of Illinois. The idea of reading multi-directionally is that it's not a simple comparison. So a simple comparison would say um, slavery and the Holocaust compared discuss. How are these similar? How are these different? Right. And you can do that. Um, multi-directional reading attempts to go back and forth. It's what some similar to what some people call intertextuality. It attempts to move back and forth between moments of pain so that we're not trying to have someone win. Rothberg uses the term um, memory is not scarce real estate. Right. So suffering is not scarce real estate. No one, no one wins. Uh, no one wants to win. The idea is to, in a very nuanced way, look at the ways that um, that different narratives of, say, um, lynching and the Holocaust, as I do, um, evoke um, moments of awareness when you look at them together, and how you reread each narrative anew in light of the other. Right. And so when, you, when you're reading these texts, there are, you know, religious ideas that are sometimes explicit, many times implicit. How did you tease them out? Uh, that's a very good question. Part of that is that um, I've spent a lot of time around Bible scholars. Um, and so what we would call biblical afterlives, the remnants of biblical tropes um, or the echoes of biblical tropes and figures like Moses, um, are sometimes very explicitly present in this literature. Um, so Harriet Tubman, even during her lifetime, was called Moses, and that comes out in children's books about her. And sometimes um, I'm seeing those resonances because of my training, uh, which is in religious studies. So I notice parallels with the binding of Isaac, for example, in ways that um, another reader might not. And that's what makes my work a little bit different from how I would have done it if I were an English professor, even though this is, this is, there are wonderful people doing religion and literature in, in all fields. Don't, don't get all the English professors mad at me. Um, but um, <laughs> I, I am in many ways an English professor, but, um, but the training in religious studies scholar, scholarship makes me aware of certain patterns in a, in a slightly different way, if that makes sense. And you do write from the perspective of, of American religious history, right? You write about Judaism and African-American Christianity being portrayed as channels for inculcating patriotism and American identity. Tell us about the three moments that you look at sort of in, th in the introductory chapter about uh, the colonial era, World War I, and the civil rights movement. Absolutely. Um, so I use chapter one as a short frame to... Uh, up those moments. So we have the colonial, uh, the colonial era, the War of Independence, um, and I look at uh, Crispus Attucks, um, who was a former slave killed in the Boston Massacre, and I compare how his sacrifice is told as one of, of martyrdom um, alongside a very wild children's book called Hanukkah of Valley Forge, which I actually do recommend. It's really quite a fun read. Um, but it's also got this sort of over-the-top moment where um, uh, George Washington is out strolling at Valley Forge and meets a young um, American Jewish patriot, a Polish immigrant, who's fighting there uh, in the cold with him. So we've got the 
um, the idea that Jews and African Americans both fought at the revolution, that, that by spilling their blood in that war, they are sort of sowing themselves into uh, American ideas of sacrifice for country at the very start. Um, and then um, I go ahead to World War One, um, which is not looked at quite as much as World War Two, um, yet uh, is a very telling moment about World War Two. So I look at Arna Bontom's, um story of the Negro. Um, Tom Bontom was an important, um, really important educator in the mid 20th century, and Sidney Taylor's All of a Kind Family Uptown. And how those two books, while written um, a little bit later, um, portray Jews and African-Americans as very, very willing to participate voluntarily in World War I fighting um, as a way of showing patriotism. And then finally, we get to the civil rights movement. And here I looked at um, the book As Good as Anybody, um, which is a history of Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Luther King Jr., and that takes us to the civil rights movement, to the idea that in the civil rights movement, Jews and African Americans were sort of co-partners in, in forging this new this alliance, which wasn't actually new. Um, they'd had alliances before that. So I picked those three moments, um, in part just to set up for the reader the idea that you can you can find this dyad um, and read across it in many different moments of American history. Um, and I, in particular, it was important for me to to have that colonial piece, the idea of reminding other Americans that both groups were present at the founding, that the founding wasn't all, so to speak, Puritans, um, and that it wasn't all just George Washington or, or Thomas Jefferson. It wasn't all wealthy landed aristocrats, right? Um, so it's really interesting to see how different groups um, narrate themselves into the beginning of such stories um, to make sure you're there at the founding of the nation um, and then into store other stories of war and patriotism, um, which in America um, are almost always inflected with religious themes of sacrifice. And then finally, um, when you get to the civil rights movement, you get to a moment that, now has become enshrined in American memory and American religious history in ways that I think are still tremendously relevant and complex. Right. Uh, part one of the book is called Crossing and Dwelling, Afterlives of Moses and Miriam. Uh, there, there are a number of books we could talk about, but um, maybe, we can talk, maybe we can talk about Julius Lester. Mm -hmm. um, he, he may be well known, but, but maybe not. Who, who is he? And um, and and what, why is his work so important to your to your argument? Absolutely, Julius Lester um, is an African American Jewish novelist. Um, he started as a writer. Actually, he started also as a musician and activist in the 1960s, um, and he uh, eventually becomes one of the first uh, really successful writers of African-American children's literature, receives some Newbery honors. Um, where his story has two interesting turns um, is in his interaction with and ultimately his incorporation into the American Jewish community. In the 1960s, um, he's accused of anti-Semitism for things he says on the, on the radio. Beware radio folks, I guess, um, about <laughs> um, 
about uh, Jews during uh, the teacher strikes there. Um, and then later in life, uh, he converts to Judaism. He actually writes an entire autobiography about it called Love Song Becoming a Jew. So he ends up producing literature about both African-Americans and Jews and their overlaps. And I think needs to be taken very seriously as an African-American Jewish author, someone who's bringing aspects of both of those traditions into his work. Um, he's most famously known for To Be a Slave, which is a um, one of his earliest texts. I end up looking at a lot of his um, more recent works, in particular The Old African from 2005, um, because of the tremendously dramatic way in which he looks at stories of crossing. Um, and later in the book, I look at uh, his discussion of lynching. So he goes to some extraordinarily dark places, and this is where we start to question genre and age group and what, what those things mean to begin with. And I think Lester is someone who is really bringing together the pains of both communities in very nuanced ways um, in that literature. So I think he, he has been read and studied by other scholars, but not really paid much attention in Jewish studies. And I think um, it's important to change that. Yeah. Uh, chapter four is um, maybe the most provocative. Um, has, has, has there been reaction to your decision to put together lynching and the Holocaust? It is provocative. Um, has there been reaction? Actually, if I'm remembering reviews right, um, that's actually, it's not been, there hasn't been reaction in the sense that anyone has gone, the horror, this is this is terrible, this is egregious. Um, actually, Chapter 4 um, has, uh, I have more friends who say they're going to cite Chapter 4 than other, other chapters, so I think that means it's better written, or that being provocative gets you somewhere. I'm not really sure what. So I, I haven't, it hasn't met with any great outcry, but it is uh, discussing lynching in the Holocaust. Um, well, let's just say it made for a very depressing summer, uh, the, the summer that I finished that chapter. Um, but it is an unusual pairing, um, which I'd be happy to talk about. Right. So you say, you know, um, more often the Holocaust has been frequently compared with the American experience of slavery. So what, what, what made your decision uh, go in this direction? Several things. Um, first of all, I have to credit a lot of um, wonderful friends and mentees. Um, Edward Bloom, who uh, with Paul Harvey wrote uh, The Color of Christ. Uh, my colleague, former colleague Michelle Cool, who's still at University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, where I used to work. A lot of people doing really important work on lynching and on the telling of lynching who said, um, you didn't have lynching in the first version of this, and that's a really important version of suffering that you haven't discussed. And it's true. When, when this project began, I did not discuss lynching. And it, it became something that I absolutely had to include. Um, why lynching and the Holocaust together? That really became about Emmett Till and Anne Frank. I sort of, in a way, this will sound mystical, but felt very seized by their ghosts in a way, um, because here were these these two children uh, both killed within about 10 years of one another um, and who both rose to national prominence in the 1950s. And I say at one point it's sort of like the dark heart of the book, and it, it really became that because um, a lot of scholars will talk about how Emmett Till, who was lynched in 
um, uh, in 1955, um, was uh, one of the sparks uh, that set off the civil rights movement. Of course, that's a long story, the civil rights movement, but there's no question that the images of him in his coffin in, uh, in Chicago, when his, which his mother specifically had an open coffin funeral, um, were shocking to people because they were actually seeing the effects of lynching um, in a way that had long been photographed, but it was a child. And Frank, of course, um, is one of our most famous victims of the Holocaust, and she's killed uh, in the 40s, but her book is published in English in the 1950s. And so, in a way, I couldn't not write about them together. Um, the fact that it is through these two suffering children that Jews and African Americans start, um, start to be more accepted and it's perverse. They become more accepted because their children have suffered and died. Um, and so that chapter really came out of that pairing and the need to talk about them together. And that led to also talking about fictionalized accounts of the Holocaust and lynching. Right. So how has um, researching and writing the book changed the way you see the world? That's a gr great question. Um, well, it's very hard to sleep and I don't know what to read to my daughter is the most honest answer. <laughs> that would be the most honest answer. I, I mean, I always saw things fairly darkly before. Um, I would say that I, I'm even more keenly aware of how much power stories hold. Um, one of the quotes I talk about in the book uh, is when I was doing some essentially reader response criticism, looking at what online readers said about all of a kind family. And one of those reviews was titled required reading for the Arab Israeli peace talks. And of course, when I first saw that, I was kind of just a jerk academic and said, that's hysterical. This is a book about 1914 in New York City. This has nothing to do with the Arab-Israeli peace talks. Um, and, of course, I very quickly realized that I was, I was the one who was ridiculous and that the reader was making a point. Um, people, people read books, and that's part of how we shape our world, or I wouldn't have thought they were worth studying. So I think I've come to take books even more seriously as a result of this research. Um, but it does also make me very scared to tell stories in a, in a bizarre, twisty sort of way. I, I do have a four-year-old daughter, and I was thinking, you know, have I read her any of the books from my <laughs> book? And it's true, she's young, um, but I don't know what I'll do at various ages. You know, I'm already sort of watching that go on, and I've tried to read her Sendak, and she's scared. Um, so... Um, uh, Sendak would think that was funny because he didn't set out trying to write for children. He famously said, I wrote, and they said, that's for children. Um, right. So uh, that, those are the two biggest effects, that I take stories even more seriously than I did, and I'm also thus very cautious with them. Well, Jody, you've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and uh, what are you working on next? I am working on a book about uh, Jewish women, material culture, and how crafting – um, is uh, sort of 
starting a new moment in Jewish feminism and how Jewish women uh, coalesce around memory. So essentially, uh, I read all those children's books about quilts and other things from Chapter 3 and said, I want to go talk to people making actual quilts. So I will be writing a really fun book about that called um, Crafting New Judaisms. Um, And that's my next project. And I really thank you for your time. Jody, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Suffer the Little Children, Uses of the Past in Jewish and African-American Children's Literature, published in 2013 by NYU Press. The author is Jody Eichler-Levine. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.